Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Free Fatty Friday on the HVMN Health Via Modern Nutrition Podcast. This is Jeffrey Wu. September 18th, 2020, and for my friends on the West Coast, we've been through a lot. Obviously, the entire world right now is going through a global pandemic, and on top of that, we have to go through air pollution and dystopic future orange skies on the western seaboard. I've actually tried to escape some of that smoke by jumping down to Southern California, but not much luck here. The air quality index is not great down in Southern California, and it's pretty consistent across the entire western half of America. And you see a lot of that smoke actually moving out east where there's red sun and, and red skies, even all the way out to Maine. So very interesting times, but We'll actually talk a little bit about that, but I wanted to say hi and give an introduction to Free Fatty Fridays. We have an awesome lineup of questions going from air pollution all the way down to measuring metabolic flexibility and efficiency to autophagy. So we'll get right into it. And as a quick reminder, Free Fatty Fridays, a fun rapid fire question and answer session with myself, bringing in my experience my stories, my best practices and tips from human performance, ketosis, longevity, fasting, ketogenic diet, all things related to human metabolism. And of course, we're also going to be bringing in more ideas, more concepts, and maybe get into a little bit of trouble talking about politics, culture, society at large. Let's get started. Our first question this week is from John T and he asks about the air pollution. How are you handling it and what can we do about the air? So I'm gonna have five minutes. I'm gonna start the timer now. Thank you for asking. I, I mean, a good portion of Americans are breathing toxic air right now. And I just remember last Wednesday when you saw the viral photos of the orange skies that looked like Blade Runner. Uh, that was a very interesting day for me because I had to actually wake up pretty early for a conference call with an East Coast group and woke up at 6 a.m. It was dark and haven't woken up that early in a little bit of time. So, hey, maybe it's just usually this dark in the fall. And take the conference call, wrap up around 9 a.m. I'd look around and it's still dark and it's actually orange. And it's, uh, from, from even from our circadian rhythm perspective, I just had a very off day, let alone from AQI air quality index of 250 plus. So what can we do about it? Before diving into best practices, honestly, is not much given that we're all in this ecosystem. And if the actual surrounding air is toxic, very hard to escape it. Um, but let's just define some of the numbers and, and get a sense of the quantification here. So when you see this AQI or air quality index, uh, what are they actually measuring? Well, they're measuring the amount of particulate matter within some volume of air. So usually that unit is microgram per meter cube. So within a cubic volume of air, a cubic meter, so one meter, one meter, one meter cube, you can actually collect and aggregate all the particulate matter and then weigh it out. 
and that's measured in micrograms. So actually very, very small and not very heavy weight. But uh, if you aggregate all of that dust together and imagine that you're actually accumulating that into your lungs, that adds up a lot of toxicity. Now, what's good, what's considered bad? Uh, usually uh, you can also break down the particulate matter into particulate size. So you really want to be watching out for particulate matter that's less than 2.5 microns apart. So you can see 2.5 microns, less than 10, uh, 10 microns long. So there's also a specific particulate matter size that you can also take in conjunction with how much volume or mass you're consuming into your lungs. Now, usually under 100 is considered okay. You know, so you gotta be worried if it's sensitive and if it's over 150, it's considered actually unsafe. And one way to just make it a lot more tangible and understandable is that every 22 micrograms per cubic meter of particulate matter is considered about one cigarette of uh, consumption. So if you are breathing one full day in something of AQI 220, well, that's 22 times 10. That's equivalent to 10 days, or sorry, 10 cigarettes consumed in that day. So that gives you a rule of thumb to think about the toxicity in the air. Now, what can I do about it? Well, again, not much other than stay inside and hopefully you have air filters. I would shut all the windows uh, that at least disrupts the, uh, the, the, the particulates coming through the cracks in your windows. And then from there, if you have a HEPA filter that actually is rated to purify and clear out particulate matter sizes of less than that 2.5 micron range, even better. But of course that takes money and obviously a lot of that stuff is out of stock right now. Um, one thing to also consider is don't exercise. And I think that's a very rare statement coming from myself. But if you are actually running outside, you're actually bringing and drawing that particulate deeper into your lungs. And it takes more effort, more time uh, for your uh, lung, the, 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 the kind of micro hairs on, on your lung cells to actually clear that out. So um, other than that, there's not much else you can do. So keep tight, keep safe, and then don't necessarily go and try to set a personal record. Obviously stay active, but don't try to be drawing in and really burying those particulates deep into your lungs. Other than that, um, let's hopefully improve our forest management and hopefully improved climate. Um, those are some of the macro things that we should be considering the long term, but of course, acute short term. Don't go outside as uh, minimize that uh, breathing of toxic air, right? I would never recommend sucking down 10 cigarettes a day and uh, we shouldn't be doing that walking outside. Is it gonna instantly kill you? Not necessarily, I mean, go about doing your business. Uh, you can wear N95 masks that actually filters out some of that particular matter. It's rated to 95% of that. Uh, those are some uh, uh, crutches along the way. So short term, avoid air long term. Let's do something about policy with forest management and climate. And I went a little bit over, but hope that's helpful for you, John. And we're almost 30 seconds, 45 seconds over. 
We'll stop there and go to the next question. This question comes from my regular correspondent on social, Air Josh B. So thanks for asking the question, Air Josh B. Welcome on the program. He asks, in thinking about measuring metabolic efficiencies without access to much of the cool tech and measurements afforded to elite athletes, do you think analyzing ketone glucose index could be a useful way to monitor states? That's a great question. And let's get the timer started now. So let's define what the ketone glucose index is. Uh, so Professor Thomas Seedfree actually popularized this notion that if you figure out and calculate the ratio of your blood ketones, so your blood glucose, that could be a useful therapeutic measure for being in quote unquote therapeutic ketosis, which may have applications for diseases like cancer. And I actually had a conversation with Thomas Seafried back a couple years ago. We should actually catch up and, and, and talk to him again uh, about this topic in more detail. But essentially, the quick summary on that is that a higher ketone ratio to glucose means that you're in a more uh, beneficial state to potentially starve a cancerous cell, which is very glycolytic or very glucose driven whereas normal cells can oxidize ketones. So if you push your metabolism more into a high ketone to glucose ratio, uh, it's a way to measure and, and quantify how much in deep ketosis are you. Now, how does this translate in terms of metabolic efficiency to athletic context or a way to understand metabolic state? Now, this is a good question. So what is standard of care? What is the state of the art? Well, a lot of you have probably have heard of BO2 max test testing and then this crossover threshold where you can actually measure your respiratory quotient, which is your carbon dioxide volume release with your oxygen intake. And you can actually, from that ratio of carbon dioxide to oxygen, actually understand whether your body is metabolizing more fat or more glucose. So 0.7 means uh, you're burning 100% fat and closer to one means that you're burning 100% carbohydrate. So uh, if you can actually do respiratory quotient testing to VO2 max uh, and you see that threshold crossover where you go more fat driven versus glucose driven, you can actually kind of start telling uh, how fat adapted you are. So if you are quite fat adapted, your crossover threshold is very, very close to VO2 max. And super elite athletes I've seen, they never actually cross over. They're doing 100% VO2 max, and yet they're still uh, primarily metabolizing fat over glucose, which is quite astounding. So how can we think about ketone glucose index? Um, this is an interesting question because without measuring the flux, the turnover of ketones in your body or glucose in your body, if you're just doing snapshots of those two measures, it might not necessarily be useful. So in my experience and what I've seen with the data, what I would expect if you are a fat adapted athlete, what would happen when you're doing exercise? I would expect your glucose actually to subtly rise over time as you have gluconeogenesis, you need to have more uh, glycolytic load as you're pushing your body. I would expect ketones to rise mildly 
uh, and then sit around a you know 0.3.5, but not really uh, elevate too much until you're really completely depleted and you're maybe at the end of a race, and maybe you see that ketones finally rise there. And the reason why you would expect to see this is because you actually want to see turnover or utilization of ketones. You don't want to have substrate just sitting in your blood, not being uptaken into your muscle and then being metabolized. So you don't necessarily want to or expect to see 3.0, 5.0 millimole ketones if you're an elite athlete. That's actually inefficient because you have all this substrate, it's not being utilized. So I think if you had a continuous ketone monitor and a continuous glucose monitor, that would be useful to get snapshot data of you know whether you're expecting to see uh, some model level of ketosis and an uptake of gluconeogenesis. And I think that's like relatively useful if you're actually be able to uh, see some metabolic flexibility there. But the gold standard, the super interesting thing to measure would be to detect the flux or turnover of ketones, meaning that if you're converting ketones constantly and you don't see that buildup, which is what you measure when you do a finger stick, that's what is a gold standard. So I would expect to see high turnover of glucose, high turnover of ketones. You wouldn't necessarily expect too much change on the ketone to glucose ratio because while the numbers stay relatively stable, you expect actual flux or uh, turnover or the second derivative of that uh, internal numbers changing while the overall ratio doesn't change. So hopefully that made sense from a, from a mathematical perspective or a physical perspective, the difference between the ratio that doesn't account for the actual second, the, the derivative of that turnover. So the quick summary there is that the turnover, the utilization is what's important less so the spot check of a ketone to a glucose ratio. So useful for making sure one is a nutritional ketosis for potential therapeutic or just confirming keto adaptation. But from sporting or performance perspective, what's more interesting is turnover rather than a snap glucose ketone uh, snapshot ratio. All right, hopefully that is helpful for you, Air Josh B. And I'm again a little bit over. These are these are great questions. I'm about six minutes in. I'm I'm, I'm bad at this. Let's move on to question three. Question three is from Ubaldo Alvarez, and he asks a politics question. So I asked for it. Let's try to do this and not get into too much trouble. He asked, "Why have most of the liberals?" declared war on meat, cows, etc. Okay, let's try to cap this at five minutes, starting now. Why have liberals declared war on meat and cows? So first, I don't think nutrition choices should be necessarily aligned with politics. They should be completely orthogonal or unrelated. Right, because why should uh, our social policies, our economic policies, relate to our food choices for our personal health? However, that said, I do know what you're talking about. Right, I think that definitely seems to be this confluence of Hollywood liberal, vegan. Uh, that seems to be a sphere, and then you have conservative hunter gun rights meat carnivore and there's been some uh magazine articles that kind of talk about these these clusters so i don't think it should be this way but 
the fact is what I observed and in terms of just the comments and feedback that I've gotten just from our small program, it definitely seems to be some political alignment with diet choices and politics. And for me, I think I just care about personal health, right? Like, like for me, I'm trying to optimize health and that alone could be in its own silo. Um, why do I think that there does seem to be kind of like a political nutritional alignment? Um, I think it's from the notion that liberals tend to want to see progression and change and there definitely seems to be an environmental factor there and a lot of the plant-based ideology is around uh, plants are more environmentally friendly or efficient than animals uh, also factory farming is not moral not ethical and it's very mean and, and we want to extend out human rights onto animal rights so I empathize with those arguments and I can see why that comes together. However, I think we should also align around some of the facts around environmentalism and around uh, animal morality or the ethics of uh, treating animals. So if you actually break down the environmental costs, and I actually recently had a really great conversation with Rob Wolf who wrote a book that really goes and is essentially a PhD dissertation in some of these topics. He really breaks on environmental costs, the true cost there, as well as the ethics around uh, basically uh, factory farming uh, and, and, the, and the animals killed through that process, through pesticides and, and, and mass uh, reaping of, of the harvest. So the, the clarity around environmental cost and how many animal mammalian lives are killed. Uh, the, the, the math and the, and the evidence does not necessarily align where uh, the liberal conservative point of view is necessarily stack up, meaning that if you kill one cow to feed a family for six months versus killing a uh, hundred voles and rodents in a field of corn to feed that same family, for six months and then you start adding on transportation costs for shipping bananas from south america or mangoes from thailand and add all that co2 costs the actual environmental costs uh for that environmental an environmental uh perspective of wanting to be a greener earth which is especially salient to all of us right now being you know stuck in smoke hellscape on the west coast uh the math is actually debatable there. And then of course, from the lives saved or lives expended perspective, are we really, I, I don't know. It's above my pay grade to decide is a hundred rodents worth one cow or what's the trade-off there. And that's a, a choice that we all need to, to, uh, to think about. But to me, it's, again, I think if you follow my program, I think meat consumption is inherent part of our culture and of our evolution. I think it's very clear that a vegan diet standalone is not a complete diet. I think it's very hard to get enough high quality protein as well as some of the micronutrients like vitamin B12 that just not existent without supplementation in just plant foods alone. I'm not saying that I, I'm not 100% carnivore. I am not afraid of animal products. Um, so, uh, 
And again, uh, these choices are not from a political ideology perspective. These are choices that I've made because I've looked at the data and evidence on what optimizes my health, my metabolism, my longevity. But again, I, I can see why some of these concepts get conflated. But if you start teasing into the science of what is the actual environmental cost? What is the actual uh, CO2 footprint? What is the actual moral cost of, of lives saved when you actually account for the full supply chain, the full life cycle of these products from making uh, a fake meat burger from canola oil, soybeans, and all of that that's shipped in package from all over, over around the world versus pasture-raised, smart uh, farming practices that actually is negative carbon footprint that actually stores more carbon back into the soil. Maybe some liberals would actually think that eating, you know, very ethically raised pasture raised meats is actually more green more environmental so hopefully this opens up the lens a little bit to not just make this into a left versus right ideological religious war but something that actually prioritizes what i think the goals are which is we should optimize for our personal health our personal healthcare costs which impacts societal healthcare costs and system and of course we should also consider environmental impact and the moral ethical impact and when you actually look at the evidence, a lot of these things are not as clear as what is uh, sort of propagandized on first pass with uh, whether it's liberal or conservative media out there. So do the work. And then from there, you can actually make an informed decision of how you want to live. Uh, I went almost a minute and a half over, but I think it was a little bit worth it just to make sure that we don't come at this from a political gotcha level, but actually break down the arguments uh, specific, kind of domain by domain from health, from environmental, from ethics, from morality, and then actually see if that actually how that reconciles with the typical liberal progressive point of view or the typical conservative point of view. And again, just from my perspective, I don't think health is political. I want to live healthy. I want to perform well. I want to have a longer more vi vitality in my life and that's something that is a uh, human right and a, and a human goal that i think everyone can agree on regardless of your political leanings or ideologies so ubaldo hopefully that's helpful to you let's not hate liberals or conservatives let's just be healthier humans individually and as a society and hopefully not kill the planet earth along the way and let's hopefully make it better along the way how about that all right that wasn't too bad I think we can talk more about politics and culture and all of that. That was fun. Please, uh, if you want to hear me pontificate on more of those topics, please come and, and engage. Now let's move on to question four. Uh, we have a question from Simply Human, and this uh, person, this human, asks, Will the baking soda neutralize the stomach acid cause slowed digestion of food? therefore less absorption. Awesome. Great question. I'll get started here. Timer on. Uh, this is probably uh, in a question in reflection to a recent podcast talking about baking soda stacked with exogenous ketones, particularly ketone esters, to enhance sporting performance. To answer the question directly, yes, baking soda does neutralize stomach acid. Baking soda is sodium bicarbonate, so it's sodium positive cation uh, ionized with uh, bicarbonate, which uh, has room to absorb one, uh, one proton, uh, which is acids are proton donors, right? So um, 
if you mix it with hydrochloric acid, which is our stomach acid, yes, you're going to see that uh, acid-base reaction. So, yes, baking soda will neutralize stomach acid and cause potential indigestion issues, which brings up the broader point here, which is that baking soda or sodium bicarbonate is very notoriously hard to incorporate into uh, pre-workout acute uh, ergogenic uh, protocol. I've talked with world experts, athletes that have experimented with baking soda in some groups just completely uh, avoid baking soda at all because if you overdose, underdose, uh, you can literally get someone to be pooping in their pants and you're not going to get elite performance for uh, maybe that 2 to 5% gain if you have a stomach ache and you need to go to the bathroom. So for some organizations, some groups, that risk of GI distress is not worth the benefit of baking soda. Um, so that's an interesting can of worms to open up there. But I would say that it looks like if you are smart with dosing sodium bicarbonate or baking soda, slowly dripping that in and not having a huge bolus or a huge whopping teaspoon of this stuff all at once, there's a pretty reasonable way to increase your buffer capacity in your system over a period of time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at a lot of anti-acids that you would treat, you know, as kind of over-the-counter remedies for acid reflux, oftentimes the, the active ingredient is sodium bicarbonate. Uh, my recommendations there is uh, follow some of the standard uh, protocols of how to take baking soda. Um, to see efficacy, oftentimes you need quite a lot. You need to ingest upwards of 20 grams. I think the rule of thumb is around 300 milligrams per body weight kilogram to see the beneficial ergogenic effects in randomized controlled trial studies. So that's a lot of, of sodium bicarbonate. So a lot of people would just kind of dose it hours before with meals and slowly kind of drink and, and retop up on bicarbonate throughout a day, maybe the day before, before going to the competition. Um, one of the interesting areas that I'm excited to personally research more about is seeing some interesting literature where baking soda, sodium bicarbonate actually increases endogenous ketogenesis. So it seems that if there's a better uh, sodium bicarbonate status, your body generates its own ketones faster. And uh, it's been studied in humans as well as in uh, in vitro cell cultures where uh, the ketogenesis in liver cells is almost 2 3x more when there's sodium bicarbonate in, in that system. Uh, it's also been replicated in an RCT trial done in, I believe, 1990 around baking soda, sodium bicarbonate, and fasting. So one potential uh, hack in terms of baking soda, not just even for performance, but for just from a fasting or a ketogenic diet perspective, use a little bit of baking soda to maybe induce ketogenesis, which helps with keto adaptation. So you bridge that energy deficit from having low glucose and low ketones. Maybe if you have baking soda that induce accelerated ketogenesis, you'll keto adapt quicker. I haven't personally use baking soda in that fashion, but something I want to be, tr uh, I want to try. Um, so I might actually do a CGM experiment and try 
uh, baking soda on and off to uh, get that N equals one data point and, and talk more about it and maybe add it to recommendations for fasting or newbie fasters or people looking to adapt in the ketogenic diet. Maybe baking soda could be part of that toolkit here that has been under discussed, underutilized. Uh, maybe for a good reason because of the GI potential issues and you're getting uh, not as much bang for the buck in terms of pooping your pants versus getting a little bit of an extra ketogenesis. But that said, I think there's been good protocols to be able to take in baking soda without having to poop your pants. So that's something that we should further explore. And look, like even mineral water has a little bit of sodium bicarbonate, right? So we're obviously consuming some level of buffer or, or, or base throughout our diet. So it is doable. It just how do you do it in a way that's efficient, cost efficient, and GI efficient, so you're not uh, worsening the outcome. So I definitely expanded out that question. Hopefully that additional context gives you a more useful holistic answer to your question. So we're on to question number five, and this is from EX Bouncers, and he or she asks what is the benefit of being in ketosis great a classic question and let's see if we can handle this in five minutes this is almost hard to answer because it's such a broad question so let's just start from an evolutionary perspective what is ketosis why does this state even exist well ketosis occurs naturally when we're in a carbohydrate restricted state and we meaning humans in general but also a number of different mammals uh, and humans are especially good at ketosis because we have very big brains it takes upwards of 20 percent of our overall energy energy and metabolic needs uh, for one single organ and the important thing is that our brains are in a protected private sphere where uh, fats cannot cross the blood-brain barrier. So as we run out of carbohydrates, sort of carbohydrate reserves, uh, we need to have an alternate energy substrate to fuel our brain. And that form cannot be fat, so our ancestors evolved this ability to convert our free, our, our fat stores. And part of our uh, the name of the segment, free fatty acids, uh, the free fatty acids from fat are converted into ketones through the process called ketogenesis. So what is the benefit of being ketosis? Arguably, it's the default state of man. Um, there's a great uh, Richard Veach quote uh, who uh, was a prominent NIH uh, ketone metabolism research who essentially the quote is, uh, the natural state of man is ketosis, is starvation. We didn't evolve with uh, fast food uh, restaurants around every single corner and the, the the point he was making is that we would constantly shift between a fed satiated state and then dipping into our energy reserves going to ketosis converting our fat stores into ketones as opposed to a lot of humans today especially in america where 88 percent of us are metabolically unhealthy and i believe a core root cause of that is that we no longer or ever dip into energy deficit, we're always in energy surplus. And that's like stuffing more gasoline, more diesel into already filled uh, gas tank. You're gonna cause metabolic damage by just jamming more and more energy into a system that's already overabundant of energy. 
And that's why cycling batteries is useful, right? You want to, you know, to extend the lifespan of a battery, you want to uh, drain it down, charge it back up, drain it back down, charge it back up. You don't just keep jamming more voltage in a already full battery. Uh, and a similar mechanism, I believe, is happening with the human system. So from that level, ketosis is just what a state that we should be in. And we're in a very unique part of our history where famine is conquered. Famine used to kill the leading killer of humans. And now chronic diseases of overconsumption, obesity, cardiovascular disease, neurological conditions, metabolic conditions. Arguably, they have a similar root cause with insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. And you can have, a, we had actually a great recent conversation with Professor Benjamin Bickman, who wrote a new book called Why We Get Sick that argues and articulates some of the evidence that suggests that insulin resistance, this notion of metabolic inflexibility, this overconsumption of energy might be a leading contributor to a number of the chronic diseases that's facing our people and it, uh, over the last, you know, 40, 50 years. So so in that lens, ketosis is beneficial because we're not in this uh, harmful state of overconsumption of energy. Now, what, now, now that we've covered kind of the overarching rationale of why ketosis is interesting, happy to dive into specific mechanisms. What are the benefits of being ketosis? Um, from kind of a, something that we all potentially care about. Well, being ketosis means that you're burning your fat stores and converting stored fat into energy rather than having to be on this constant carbohydrate, glucose, pasta, bread, pizza run of just converting sugar uh, and candy and bread and, and, and carbohydrate into energy. It means that we can actually improve body composition and improve fat mobility in terms of using some of that stored energy that we all have on our body. So it's great from a body comp perspective to be able to tap into the, the stored fat cells rather than just constantly kind of uh, eating and turning that kind of quick energy resource in, uh, back out. Uh, so that's just kind of a, a, a one interesting mechanism there. And then two, and this is something that I'm particularly interested in the research is that there's more and more data suggesting that ketones being in ketosis is a signaling state, a physiological state that signals longevity pathways. So the presence of ketones upregulates FOXO3, which is a well-known longevity pathway. So maybe some of the benefits of fasting is actually mediated through the presence of ketones, i.e. ketosis. So you're triggering some of the longevity benefits of fasting, calorie restriction through being in ketosis. Ketosis, ketones is an HDAC inhibitor. So it manipulates the unfolding and, 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 and replication of our, some of the longevity pathways in our DNA. So that's interesting. And that's just like a really interesting cutting edge of research where we're seeing good animal and starting to see some early, early pilot human data on the longevity benefits of being in ketosis. How much of that is just like not being in a crappy state of being in a standard American diet of overconsumption of energy versus uh, just being in a more natural state? Maybe that's a, uh, that's a, that's a scientific uh, academic debate, but there's clearly value there. And then from the performance side or the therapeutic side, there's a lot of interesting research around ketones being a very preferred efficient energy source for the brain. So which might have useful applications for 
not just enhance cognitive performance, potentially therapeutic for cognitive dementias. And then there's also the new and interesting emerging data around physical performance. Can exogenous ketones or ketosis increase endurance, increase central nervous system efficiency so you're getting better athletic performance and better decision-making process, that conjunction of the brain body performing better with a better, more efficient fuel. And that goes back to the notion that ketones are a very efficient fuel with an increased efficiency across the, the electron transport chain in the mitochondria, where you're getting more efficiency metabolizing ketones than other substrates. That's probably worth a standalone question in of itself. And I've already passed my five minutes here. So what is the benefit of being ketosis? A lot. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's an, and it's a, it's an actively researched area. Uh, so hopefully I'll keep answering this question every couple months with new tidbits and new findings that's coming out of researchers and academia uh, today. Great question. And that's the time we have for this week's episode of Free Fatty Fridays. I know I have a lot more questions that you guys have asked, so don't worry, it's in a queue. I'm gonna get to them. And as always, thank you so much for allowing me the platform to answer these questions. I'm having a lot of fun. It's fun to be able to free, uh, freeform spitball and practice some blue verbal fluidity and, and verbal craftsmanship by answering all these different types of questions across so many different topics. It's a lot of fun for me. So keep them coming. If you have your questions or your questions that were sparked from this conversation or things that you're observing in the world, uh, write in at podcast at hfreeman.com or reach out directly on social media. I'm at Jeffrey Wu, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y on Twitter or Instagram. I'll check my DMs or just just tag me. Or you can also use the hashtag FFFJeff. So F-F-F-G-O-F-F to, uh, we're monitoring that. So any questions using that tag, we'll put them in the queue and we'll answer them in an upcoming Free Fatty Friday episode. Appreciate any support that you show across likes, subscribes, reviews. That's honestly the best way to show your support for our program. Thank you so much for all the support so far. And hopefully I'll talk to you very soon. Uh, stay safe, breathe clean air, and get educated, get prepared, and stay resilient. Talk to you all very soon. Bye.